A reading from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. reading from the Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of, greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is, he, is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold... From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, he has broken down the mighty from their thrones, and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, 
to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. The Gospel of the Lord. Almighty Father, uh, we, we come before you on this uh, Advent Sunday, this first Sunday of Advent, this, this season of celebrating the coming of Jesus. Um, we come before you this morning only because you and Christ have come before us. Our whole story is not at all about our coming towards you. It's not about our approach to you. It's about your pursuit of us, your advent towards us. And we ask you now, in this very moment, to advent towards us, that is to come near us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, address the questions that are obstacles to our trusting you. Uh, remove uh, uh, whatever stands between us and you. We want to know you as you are. So make yourself clear. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, uh, take your seat. And uh, it's useful, it's helpful if you turn back to pages uh, 8 and 9. Uh, as we've said a bunch of times, um, this is the first Sunday of Advent. So for, uh, for the Christian church, this is New Year's. So happy New Year's. There we go. There we go. We start the parties early. Um, and, uh, and what Advent is, uh, hopefully we've made this clear, it's the four weeks that lead up to Christmas. And throughout uh, Advent, over this next uh, four weeks, we're going to be looking particularly at that second reading. And within that second reading, we're going to be particularly looking at Mary's song. You see that poem uh, that takes up the majority of the reading. Now, traditionally, Christians call this poem of Mary the Magnificat. Everybody say Magnificat. There you go. And we're going to be uh, looking at this, uh, this prayer, this uh, song of Mary, this Magnificat, and we're going to let it guide us over the next four weeks of Advent. Why? Why is uh, this song of Mary going to set our agenda through Advent? Well, one of the questions that we need to ask every single year during Advent is this question, why did Jesus come? Uh, the word Advent means arrival or coming. And so one of the best ways to get ready for Christmas, uh, spiritually, is to ask the question, what was the aim of Jesus' advent, his arrival, and his coming? What was the meaning of it? Why did Jesus come? And Mary's song, the Magnificat, helps us answer that question, and here's why. Mary composed this poem uh, right at the beginning of her pregnancy with Jesus. And her song, do you notice this? Her song is just full of joy. Now, maybe that doesn't surprise you. Lots of expectant mothers are very, very happy. But what you need to see is that Mary's joy in this poem is much bigger than simply the fact that she was going to have a baby. In fact, you need to keep in mind that when she's singing this song, she is in grave peril. Uh, remember that she is a not yet married, uh, probably teenage young woman. She's from a uh, lower class background. She's from an Orthodox Jewish family, and she is experiencing an unexpected pregnancy. And in Mary's day, uh, that's a dangerous thing, and it's a perilous thing today, oftentimes. 
And in Mary's day, she could be isolated, she could be ostracized, she could be vilified, and some people thought that it was a good reason to perpetrate violence against her. So she's in danger at this moment. And we find out as the story unfolds uh, that Mary will experience both short-term and long-term suffering because she's the mother of Jesus. And yet, despite all of that, she sings this song and she sings it full of joy. And the fact that we have it recorded in the Gospel of Luke indicates that almost certainly she kept it in her heart and in her mind and was willing to tell it to Luke many, many years later. And that means that she never got over this joy. Now, why is she full of joy? Well, that's the question we get to answer over the course of the next four weeks. But here's a little bit of it. This uh, poem from Mary, it is a masterpiece poem. Almost every single line of her poem alludes back to the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And it's almost as if Mary is uh, saying something like this. It's almost like she's saying, all my life I've heard of the mercies of God recorded in scripture. It's as if Mary says, all my life I have heard how God has promised to enter and to intervene in this world and to mend this broken world. It's as if Mary says, in all my life, I've wondered, how is he going to get that done? And how is God going to keep all the formidable and big promises that I've heard all my life in the Hebrew scriptures? And now she says, now I can see that in my embryonic child, that embryonic child within me is the unexpected but perfect fulfillment of all of God's promises. And my joy, it's as if Mary says, my joy in this poem is the soundtrack of a world that's being made new. Now that's a big thing to claim. But we're going to flesh that out over the course of these next four weeks. And as, the way we're going to do that is that each week we're going to look at an Old Testament scripture and show how the theme in the Old Testament is sort of uh, picked up by Mary and transformed. And it'll give us insight into why it is that Jesus came. And today, here's what I want to show you. Today, I want to show you that Jesus came to restore our broken humanity. And Mary's song is what it, sound like, what it sounds like when that restoration of real humanity lands upon our souls. And to explain that, we're going to begin not with Mary's song, but we're going to begin with the first reading. So turn over to the first reading. That is page eight. Uh, and this reading, it may be familiar to a lot of us. Um, it comes from almost the beginning of the Bible. This is the third chapter in the first book of the Bible. And it's the famous story of uh, Adam and Eve and the serpent, right? The snake. And what I want you to see, we're not going to go into all the details, but what I want you to see is how the serpent, the snake tempts the woman who's called Eve. Because the snake, I want to show you, is trying to dismantle Eve's humanity. Back up and remember the context. So in the story of Genesis, this is the very beginning of the Bible. Um, it's a story of how God creates everything, but God creates humanity. And when God creates humanity at the beginning of Genesis, God designs humanity to flourish in union with himself. What does that mean? Well, uh, God and humanity in Genesis are supposed to be united to one another with at least three types of union. God and humanity are united in a union of trust. 
They are united in a union of dignity, and they are united in a union of presence. Trust, dignity, and presence. Um, so, first, they're united by a union of trust. So if you read Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, one of the things you'll notice is that God is very talkative. Like, God says a lot of things. In fact, uh, the, the, Genesis describes the whole creation of the world and attributes it to God's speech. God speaks the world into existence. And there's a lot of significance to that part of the story. But part of it is this. It's as if, um, it's as if well, part of the point is that if you are going to trust anything, trust God's word. Trust what it is that God says. At least, trust what it is that God says, because according to Genesis, everything that's real, everything that is really trustworthy, exists because God spoke it into existence. And therefore, if everything rests upon God's word for its very existence, that means that whatever God says is the most trustworthy thing in the universe. Now, when God creates humanity, one of the things that God says is God speaks to them and says that humanity is uh, supposed to flourish by trusting what it is that he tells them. And so famously, one of the things that God does is he builds this garden, the Garden of Eden, and then God speaks and tells humanity that they're free to eat from anything in the garden with one exception, there's one tree that they need to not eat from. And part of the significance there is it's uh, just as God's word is the basis of all existence in Genesis, so also... God's word is the basis of humanity's relationship with God. So humanity is designed to flourish as humanity trusts that what God says is true and that what God says is going to chart a better path to their flourishing than humanity could ever chart on our own. So there's a union of trust. We're supposed to trust God's word. But then secondly, there's a union of dignity. Uh, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, we didn't read it, but one of the things that God says is that humanity is, uh, is made in his own image and likeness. Now, why is that important? Well, it's hugely important. Why? Because it means that God created humanity in order to share some of his own dignity with humanity. So, for instance, an ambassador uh, shares in the dignity of the government she represents, right? It's part of what happens with an ambassador. And in Genesis 1, God designs humanity and shares his dignity, something of his own dignity, his image. And that dignity was a gift from God to humanity with the purpose so that we could go out and serve as his ambassadors here in this world. And our role was to kind of represent God to this world and our role was to kind of be this world's voice back towards God. We were supposed to serve this world as ambassadors and representatives of God. And we were supposed to worship God as representatives and ambassadors of this created world. We were to share something of God's own dignity. So there's a union of trust. We are to trust God's word. That's where the flourishing is going to happen. There is a union of dignity. God gives us uh, his, something of his own dignity so that we can represent him in this world well. And then thirdly, 
there's a union of presence. God made the Garden of Eden. And the part of uh, what the Garden of Eden is, is it's meant to be, I've said this before, it's meant to be a temple. What's a temple? A temple is a place where uh, heaven and earth come together. It's an embassy of, uh, for God in this world. And so the Garden of Eden was meant to be a place where God and humanity could live together in close proximity to each other. And their physical closeness was a symbol of relational closeness. And their physical proximity was a, a symbol of relational intimacy. They were supposed to live together. So that's part and crucial to the Bible's vision for what full and real humanity is meant to be. When we're firing on all cylinders, humanity is supposed to flourish in a union of trust with God, a union of dignity with God, and a union of presence with God. But now, keep all that in your mind and watch the snake in that first reading. Because the snake wants to dismantle all of those unions. First of all, he wants to dismantle the union of trust. Uh, the snake comes to Eve and verse 1 says... What's his question? Did God seriously say? And then he totally mangles and misrepresents what it is that God said. But what's the point there? The snake is trying to disrupt Eve's confidence that God is trustworthy. And verse 4, so Eve responds and says, no, 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 that's not what he said. He said something else. And then verse 4 says, basically, uh, God's a liar. In the, in the original, in the very first English translation of Genesis in the, in the 1500s, one of the first translations, um, the, the, this was translated, uh, Eve, you know, the snake says, did God really say, and Eve says, no, God didn't say that, he said this, and then the snake leans in, in the translation, and he says, tosh. God didn't really say that. So, or actually, he says, tosh, you will not surely die. But the idea is he, he, there's an eye roll, there's a glottal release, ugh, and he's saying God is a liar. And, and then the snake says, he, he, he says that you're going to die if you eat this fruit, but he's lying. You're not going to die. You're actually going to be like God. And the implication is God's trying to keep you down, Eve. Now, what I want you to see is how the snake is trying to dismantle the union of trust in God's word. And then, at the same time, he's trying to dismantle Eve's union of dignity in God. Look at verse 5. The snake says, in effect, God's been keeping you down. Stop trusting what he says. Eat the one fruit that God has disallowed, because the result is that you're going to finally be like God. Now, pause, and don't fall into the spell of the, the snake. Just think about it for a second, because God has already given Eve his own dignity, right? God has already caused Eve to share in his own image and likeness. He's already bestowed upon her a dignity she can never achieve. But the snake wants to dismantle all of that. He wants to dismantle that dignity, and he wants to give Eve to replace the dignity given by God with a self-made dignity. He's saying, don't trust God's word. Jettison the dignity God has given you and replace it with a manufactured dignity of your own. And then Eve, along with Adam, eats the fruit. 
And when that happens, it's not just that they're kind of uh, uh, transgressing a silly, arbitrary rule. When she eats the fruit, when he eats the fruit, they are consenting to the dismantling of their own humanity. That doesn't mean they stop being human. But it means that sin dismantles and sin dehumanizes us. Always. And once the union of trust is gone and the union of dignity is gone, the union of presence goes as well. Because Adam and Eve, they leave the garden, they're exiled from God's presence, and they're exiled from intimacy with God. Now, Emmanuel, in just a second, we're going to go to Mary's song. But before we do that, I want you to consider your experience of being human. Don't you find that we are always looking for intimacy, aren't we? We're always looking for intimacy, and we're always looking for that intimacy, but nevertheless, even when we find close relationships, very often those close relationships end up becoming the epicenter of our pain and our experience of betrayal. Why is it that the intimacy we desire is always slipping through our fingers? Well, part of it is that that's what it feels like to live in dismantled humanity. We've been exiled from the intimacy for which we were created. And, and don't you find that we're always trying to achieve, right? We're always trying to achieve dignity. We're always trying to kind of perform or achieve or prove or earn uh, that we are really enough in ourselves. And our, our thought about our own dignity is always orbiting, orbiting around the question, who am I and am I enough? And do other people think I'm enough? And all of those sorts of things, it's always orbiting around me. And yet even when we are able to achieve something that impresses other people in our secret parts of our hearts, we deeply know that it's never quite enough. We're never, our dignity is never quite enough. Why? That's what dismantled humanity feels like. We were made to live under a dignity given by God and not achieved by us. And along with that, uh, very often, we ne there's a way in which we as humans, we never quite know who we can trust, right? We're always asking, who is it that we can trust? What is truth? What is truth that I can really build my life on? Whose truth can I really trust? And once again, friends, that's what dismantled humanity feels like. We were made to trust in God's word. We were made to trust someone who never, ever, ever lies. But without that, we never really feel like we can be utterly confident and give our trust to anyone entirely. Now, I say this because I want you to see how we all know what dismantled humanity feels like. But what do you think restored humanity? feels like? What would it be like if the union of trust and the union of dignity and the union of presence was all put back together? What would that be like? Well, it would feel like the Magnificat. It would feel like Mary's song. Take a look at the first couple of lines of Mary's song. Verse 46, Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked upon the humblest state of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. 
For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now, what I want to show you is, first of all, Mary's joy is because of a restored union of trust. Remember what's happened in the story. So Mary is a young, unmarried uh, Jewish virgin. She's engaged, but they're, they're not married yet. And an angel, before this reading, comes to her and tells her that despite the fact that she's a virgin, she's going to become pregnant. And that her son is going to be named Jesus. The word Jesus means Savior. And that Jesus is going to be God's son. And Jesus is going to be the king over everything who restores everything. And as bizarre as that message is, Mary believes it. She trusts. She doesn't know how it's going to happen. But she trusts that God's word is true. And that's the key. Look at verse 45. So after Mary uh, uh, receives this news, she goes and she visits her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth is also pregnant miraculously, though differently, um, with a baby who would become John the Baptist. And John the Baptist leaps in her womb. And Elizabeth puts the pieces together and looks at Mary and says, verse 45, blessed is the one who believed or trusted that there would be a fulfillment to what was spoken to her uh, by the Lord. Now, Now, look at what happens here. God speaks. Mary trusts. And that was the beginning of God restoring humanity. He restored a union of trust. Jesus' own birth came by faith. And it's a remarkable thing because Eve and Adam uh, consented to the dismantling of their humanity in the beginning. But now, Mary consents to the restoration of humanity. The restoration of the union of trust. But then there's a union of dignity. Look at verses uh, 48 and 49. Do you see why it is that Mary says she's so excited? She's rejoicing in God. Why? She's rejoicing in God because God, verse 48, has blessed her. Blessed her in such a way that she knows at this point that all generations are going to look back to her and say that she is blessed above all. And verse 49, she can see that God has done great things. In another translation, it says, uh, she says that God has magnified me and that's why I'm magnifying him. And the point is, God is giving her a dignity beyond anything she could possibly ever achieve. God caused her to become the mother of God incarnate. Like, no one achieves that. It's sheer grace. It's sheer gift from God. And Emmanuel, just for a second, settle in upon the magnitude of that gift. Because I think that's part of why Humility is so important. Take a look at verse 48. God looks upon Mary's humility and gives her humility immeasurable honor and dignity. Now, that doesn't mean that her humility somehow earned God's blessing. Her humility was appropriate. In fact, the only thing that was robust enough to hold the magnitude of the blessing God bestowed upon her was humility. Think of it this way. Human pride, human uh, uh, pursuit of dignity, the orbits around me and my achievement and so forth. Human pride is, is too weak to hold the magnitude of the grace God wants to give us. Human pride is too weak to hold the dignity that God bestows upon the human person. Only humility is robust enough 
and strong enough to hold the matchless dignity that God wants to give and that God gave Mary here. And Mary's joy is the result of God bestowing and restoring the union of trust and then the union of dignity. But then that's not all. There's also the union of presence. Do you see Mary's intimacy with God? She didn't use the word intimacy. You don't need to use the word intimacy when you're right in the middle of it. Do you see her joy? Her joy is not just in what God has done. Her joy is in who God is. It's like her soul is looking at God and finding God to be beautiful beyond all her imagining. It's like she's in God's presence right up near him. And of course, the reality is that that's exactly what was the case. Or maybe better, it wasn't so much that she was in God's presence, it's that God's presence was in her. She was in the presence of God incarnate precisely within her womb. It's a remarkable thing. Jesus Christ, still an embryo in her womb, is the perfect union of presence. Eden was meant to be a meeting place between God and humanity where they could come together. But in Jesus Christ, God and humanity are not just in each other's presence, but they have become one in one person, Jesus Christ. And Mary's joy is the first fruit of that restored intimacy with God that Jesus would bring. And all of this brings us back, Emmanuel, to the question of Advent. Why, Emmanuel, why did Jesus come? Well, the answer, part of it, is that Jesus came to restore our humanity. Jesus came to restore us to the joy that the Magnificat expresses. Because Jesus, in his person, is the perfect union of presence. Jesus is the perfect image of God. Jesus re uh, represents God to us and represents us to God. And in his life, he perfectly trusted God's word. He's not only the perfect perfection of the union of presence, he's also perfect union of trust. And he trusted his father's word all the way to dying upon a cross. And when he died, he suffered the consequence of our sin. He suffered the consequence of our dismantled humanity. And then he rose from the dead. And he rose from the dead with the offer to restore humanity to all those who put their trust in him. And therefore, Emmanuel, as we enter this advent, what I want to call you to do is to place the Magnificat, Mary's song, before you. We all of us know what dismantled humanity feels like, but this prayer allures you to taste and see what restored humanity is like. Take this prayer and make it your own. Uh, take this prayer and learn to sing it yourself. And when I say that, I don't mean that in a meta metaphorical way. I mean, take this and memorize it. Pray it every day. I encourage you to pray the, the version that's just a couple verses or a couple uh, pages earlier in our service sheet. That one's meant, designed for our memory. But take this song and memorize it and internalize it and ask God as you pray it each day to make the song of Mary to become the song of your soul. Eve consented to the dismantling of humanity and we have all of us followed her. But Mary consented to the restoration of humanity, and we need to follow her lead and trust Christ's promise to restore us. 
And as God gives you the grace to trust in him, and as that trust in him grows, uh, God, Jesus is going to give you the union of dignity. And the, when Jesus gives us the union, the uh, union of dignity, what happens is he arranges our adoption into the family of God so that we, we become the sister or the brother of Jesus Christ. And you will never know a greater dignity than that. And then as Jesus' adopted sister or brother, you will gain the union of presence because Jesus will give you the right to enjoy God's presence, not as a far-off deity, but as your father. And it's that intimacy that you were designed to enjoy. So, Emmanuel, this Advent, come to the Magnificat and learn and internalize the soundtrack of a restored humanity and ask Christ to come to you and to impart the reality that this song describes. Amen? Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.